And I think the dirty little secret here is that 80% of the battle in building a great sales team is won or lost by hiring the right people. It's actually, you can build all the pipes and automation and A-B testing frameworks you want and look at all the data you want. At the end of the day, the most important thing you can do, the biggest lever is finding people that have that primal drive to be awesome, like to be somebody. And uh, my phrase for that is wired for greatness. Um, and so when you, when you have people that have that intrinsic motivation, they're going to come into work and drive themselves intrinsically. They're going to drive themselves crazy in the pursuit of being great. And man, when you find that, like, you don't have to micromanage those people. You don't have to worry about what time they come to work, what time they shut down their laptop, you know, do they go to the training or not? Like you just have to point them in the right direction and put some guardrails. And so I feel like that is the single most basic but non-obvious thing that I would think about if I was a technical founder trying to build a sales team. Start from that. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? To be a student of the game. We are back. Welcome, welcome to the GTM pod. I'm certainly glad that you haven't checked out yet for the holidays and you're still taking the time to level up and learn from some of the best go-to-market operators on the planet, in the game. And to all those pushing hard for a strong Q4, you know, we salute you. It's a tough environment out there, but deals are still getting done. It's still happening and uh, you got this. So keep it rocking. And thank you to everyone. Downloads continue to pop for this podcast. So uh, we really appreciate all of you coming back each week and leveling up and learning. Uh, this is already episode 13, which is wild, but Let's get right into it because I want to spend as much time as humanly possible picking this next guest's brain. I am joined by the infamous Suresh Khanna, who is the co-founder and COO at Pieces, uh, former CRO and then president of AdRoll Group, and previous to that was the director of inside sales at Google. And of course, he also invests and advises across many different incredible startups, and we're lucky to have him as an LP and GTM fund. Uh, and a fun fact, he also owns a restaurant, Casa Indian Eatery in SF, uh, that has won a ton of awards. But Suresh, welcome to the pod, my friend. Super excited to be here. Thank you, Scott. Well, thanks for jumping on. And I mean, I think we got to start with the hard-hitting questions. When one finds themselves in Casa Eatery, what's the one dish they have to try? Well, okay. So at Casa, the all-time bestseller is is chicken tikka masala, which if anybody's an Indian food connoisseur, uh, that's not sort of uh, not the biggest hot take. But I think what the real OG kind of customers love, we do like smoked eggplant. It's called Bartha. Our real, like our, what we get out of bed for at the restaurant is bringing like simple homestyle food to like the West. And so we have these rotating veggie specials and that's where the real goodness is. If you ask me, you got to go in and ex explore that stuff. It's, it's the best. Hell yeah. Just wrote that down. Smoked eggplant. I'm, I'm personally a sucker for like a kind of ridiculously spicy chana masala. That's usually my, my go-to. 
There you go. There you go. Well, and I have to plug the chai. So my wife and I started Casa in 2008. I actually wrote the business plan back in 2002 in grad school. And um, we kind of sat on the plan for a few years. We had, uh, we have two kids. They were born in kind of after grad school. And, and then 2008 came around. You're like, we were like, you know what? No one has done this thing yet. We wanted to do like really cool, simple Indian food, no microwave, no freezers, just cook everything from scratch, really simple, simple menu. And so we've been doing it since 2008. Now, none of the food is, is mine. Uh, I, you know, but there's one thing that I did, which was the chai and the chai became kind of this cult thing in San Francisco. Um, we have a massive kind of fan base for the chai, which, which is, I'm the mad scientist. I've got a room full of experiments I've been running for 20 years on like the ratios of tea to water and how long do you steep it and what ingredients and when do you grind it and throw it in and how much sugar or not. And so we ended up spinning that out as an e-commerce business. Now, Um, like during COVID, basically our customers were fiending for their chai. And um, because of COVID, we started bagging up uh, make at home kits for people and it took kind of took off. And so now that's become its own whole thing, which is, which has been really fun. So you got to try the chai if you, if you haven't had that before. I got it and I can buy it, buy it online. This is the funniest plug I think we've ever had on this podcast. But what, what's the, what's the e-commerce chai? I need to get my hands on some. Casachai.com. K-A-S-A-C-H-A-I.com. Um, you'll find it in Good Eggs at that, a bunch of grocery stores in, in San Francisco. So yeah. I'm going to check it out. And I think we'll see a common theme as we get further into this discussion of this mad scientist, A-B testing. you kind of been doing this your whole career, whether it's chai or, or sales teams. So just quickly, do you mind giving just a little more context on your background? Because it, it it's an incredible one. If I remember correctly, you know, your, your family came over here in, in 1965. And yeah, just walk me through that transformation from then until today. Yeah, I'm your classic kind of a child of immigrants. You know, my, um, so I've got three older sisters. They were all born in India. And my dad just woke up one day at 35 years old and was like, you know what? Like, I'm just not going to get where I want to get to uh, in India uh, at the time. And he was a civil engineer who was working on large scale irrigation projects there. If you've heard of the Green Revolution, he was like involved in all of that in Punjab. And he just was like, I'm not going to get where I want to get to and just decided to move his entire life to to the U.S. Got to San Francisco in 1965, uh, you know, turban, beard, uh, civil engineer. And in that era, in this country, in this city, it's a pretty wild time to arrive. And, and he left my mom and my three sisters behind for close to two years to come and try to set things up. And what's funny is he landed maybe a mile, mile and a half from where I live today. And, you know, but at that point, big, you know, turban, beard, like he's not getting a job in civil engineering. And so he ended up, you know, shaving his beard, cutting his hair, ditching the turban. He started out as a dishwasher, um, you know, on a restaurant on Geary and I think ninth. And, um, you know, fast forward, uh, nine years and I'm born and I'm like the first kid I like to, this is certainly not true, but I like to joke that I'm like the first Kanna born outside of India in like 2000 years. And so I am this weird hybrid of, um, you know, deep Indian roots plopped into the middle of Silicon Valley, you know, in 1974. And so, you know, I, I ended up 
you know, having this really complicated upbringing where just struggling with identity. I think a lot of people do that. And, you know, am I Indian? Am I American? How do I merge those two things together? And, um, you know, coming out of college, you know, I, I would say I, I really was still learning about myself. And so I, I came out, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up becoming a, an investment banker uh, doing tech M&A in 1996 at a company called Broadview, which is now part of Jeffries. I swear to God, I interviewed for this job in investment banking. And on my way to my first interview, um, I was at, at Stanford as an undergrad. I had to ask my roommate in my dorm, like what investment banks do on my way to the interview. I mean, I had literally no privilege, no access. Like I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I'm going to this interview. But from there, I spent, th- you know, three years in investment banking and then, and then private equity. And I just drank from the fire hose of like, analytics and numbers, working 80, 90 hours a week, like digging down deep on, you know, sort of like uh, resiliency, I'd say. Uh, But really quickly, I realized I didn't want to be the banker in the room. You know, I would want to be the guy with the blazer and the spreadsheet. I kept looking across the table saying, these entrepreneurs are the people I want to actually be like, like they're in the game with the ups and the downs. And I was a competitive athlete growing up in baseball and that really like resonated with me. And so I got out of there and I joined my first startup in 1999, a company called Yodely, um, Sequoia Excel backed startup and, um, with an amazing team. Um, it was basically plaid 20 years before plaid existed, just wildly ahead of its time. And I cut all the initial business development deals with. Citibank and Merrill Lynch and E-Trade and all these places where we wanted to pipe data into Yodely. And it was an amazing experience, but I didn't know anything about what I was doing right or wrong. I had no framework for any of this. So um, around that time, I got married to my amazing wife, uh, Namika, who was a lawyer in England, and she had moved to the US. And so we went off to grad school and had our first baby. And so um, all of a sudden, you know, coming out of grad school, I ended up in this series of jobs at bigger companies that I just really quickly became a cog. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go to McKinsey after business school and, but I had this little six month old and frankly, like my wife and I were working on our marriage and it wasn't going that well. Like he really missed England where she was from. And, you know, we were, we were both kind of like working through life. And I was a 26 year old about to, you know, who was a a dad sort of almost unexpectedly. We got pregnant right after we got married and I ended up turning down the McKinsey job because I was like, it was the first time in my life where I had to reconcile, like, I'm not living my life for my resume. Like I I need to like be the person that I want to be. And so what kind of father do I want to be? And and I just didn't feel like, you know, I could be the, the father I wanted to be or the husband I wanted to be or even like help participate in this marriage and get it stable. If I was off five days a week on the road at McKinsey, like gunning it for the top of fortune, whatever fortune 500 America. And so I ended up turning that job down and I, I I needed to prioritize family. And so I ended up in a series of kind of big enterprise software companies and really quickly I became a a cog in the wheel. I remember my first promotion ever at these companies. Um, It was, I went from being customer strategy manager to manager comma customer strategy. We called it the comma promotion. Like they took the word manager and moved just to the front and put a comma in it. You got new business cards and business cards were, were still a thing back then. And I feel like I I remember, I just kind of like put my head down. I was like, is this, is this what my career is going to be like? You know, it wasn't a meritocracy. No one really cared what I thought. 
about anything. I wasn't asked any questions. I didn't get pushed to be the best person I could be. And it was just like, you know, every two years we promote you and, and that's the cycle. And um, I just dreaded going to work, to be honest. And so, you know, thankfully in this time, I was able to kind of get, you know, with my wife, our family on the right track. She and I connected. We, we actually started thinking about the restaurant, which helped it to ground us. Eventually, I made my way to Google. And I was just so lucky to join Google at a point where it was growing like crazy. And I learned from these titans of business. Um, Cheryl Sandberg was one of my mentors. Uh, Sukinder Singh Cassidy, who was actually my boss at Yodali, was, was one of my mentors. And I just drank from the fire hose. I learned so much there. But ultimately, you know, it's a big company. And I got to this point where, you know, do I just go to work every day because they pay me really well and I get three free meals a day and, you know, boats are floating by in San Francisco Bay outside my office and I can see Treasure Island and my team's all from these amazing places and they're so talented and the product sells itself. I was like, but for me, I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't learning as much anymore. And I felt like more importantly, it didn't really matter. Like if my teams did like 300% of their goal versus 50%, like Google was going to be fine either way, you know, and that really deeply ate away at me. Like I was like, that's not, I don't want that to be what my career is about. Even though I, I learned a ton there, deep respect for Google. It just wasn't what I wanted at that point. And I didn't want my kids to see me just grab my bag and kind of just trudge off to work because the benefits are really good. And so I ended up leaving uh, Google. I remember I called my mom to say that I was leaving and she cried. She was, it was like the first company she'd ever heard of. Uh, my mom's like this four foot eight Indian, you know, severe, you know, like strict religious Indian woman. And she was so proud. She bragged all her friends that her son worked at Google. And she's like, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to AdRoll. And she's like, what is that? And a lot of people at Google said that too. It was like, where are you going? And I was like, isn't AdRoll like a 15 person company? It, it's a feature in AdWords. Like, you know, there's a million competitors that are really similar. Like why, why there? And I, I don't I didn't really have a good reason so much as I felt like I could jump in and immediately have impact. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to like change the slope of every company I was at from that point on. And I got really lucky at AdRoll. It was an amazing run. I made friends for life. We made a gazillion mistakes. We did some things really well. We had a lot of fun. There was no ego. We moved really fast and we caught some waves. And um, I was lucky to be the chief revenue officer for a six, six and a half year run. Um, and eventually the president where we built it, you know, I think it grew to around $150 million uh, in revenue when I left and net revenue um, and profitable. It was just so fun. So fun. So yeah, that's from there. I started to think, well, what's next? Like, again, I felt like as we got bigger, my growth sort of curve started to flatten and I just yearned for like the early days again, where we could move fast. And so, yeah, I, I wanted to try zero to one. So I, I, I the last three years, I co-founded a company called pieces with a couple amazing co-founders. Um, we're a seed stage company, about 20 people, mostly engineers. And, um, I really wanted to give this zero to one thing a try. I, I think I feel like I'm really good at scaling businesses, but I wanted to try to get something off the ground from scratch. And boy, it is really hard. It's a whole different kind of kind of struggle. Whole new ball game for sure. Well, that's an incredible story, and you know, I think a lot of us can resonate with this. The two moments there were one you you turned down this McKinsey role because you're like, hey, I need to architect a life and not just a career. Right. I need to be intentional with what my actual life looks like. And then your decision to 
you know, optimize for impact over maybe safety, uh, which, you know, I think a lot of us wrestle with uh, every day. And I want to spend more time on sort of this time period at, at AdRoll because that was an incredible, incredible run. And I think the overarching theme of, of the the story I would love for you to sell and, and, and tell us is how you actually built a true performance culture across your go-to-market team. And that means, you know, how do you hire and onboard like truly top 1% sales talent? But before we get there, and I think all our listeners are probably going to roll their eyes at this because I've mentioned this a few times on the pod, but every week new things seem to be coming out. And I want to touch on it because I'm actually writing a piece on how generative AI is going to impact the future of, of go-to-market. So I can't help myself but to get your opinion. Uh, what do you make of all these event advancements in AI that have exploded over the last you know months or so? And how will this ultimately affect go-to-market? And just a quick hot take. I, I think it's going to be wildly impactful. I think this is a decade or even two-decade transformation where every business process is going to be reimagined with AI at the center. You know, it, it is on the order of the impact of the internet, in my opinion. And there's been a few points in my career where I've seen things where my jaw drops. I'm like, oh, wow, that changes everything. Um, Slack was an example of that. Here, I think that we're at the, the first pitch of the first inning of how leading thinkers that are running marketing functions, sales functions, support functions, product, really every function, even engineering, everything I think will be reimagined with AI at the center. And the companies that adopt those technologies first will be will have enormous advantages. Um, from a technology side, yeah, again, first pitch of the first inning in terms of the there's a there's a wave of startups right now in gen in the generative space, whether it's text or images or video um, or code. And so much of this is going to change quickly. But, you know, I'm really excited both as a practitioner running teams, but also just as an investor, as an advisor, I, I want to throw my entire time into sort of being part of this transformation from, from day one. And it's going to impact everything. Like we live in our kind of B2B tech world, but like it's going to influence your your restaurant in some capacity. I, I sent a bunch of podcasts to my fiance who runs an e-commerce underwear brand. I was like, you gotta, I don't even know if you're going to need your agency in, in like the next six months, you know? I mean, I think every, every agency in the world is going to change and put AI at the center. Probably the winners of the agency world will be, will may, maybe don't exist yet, or, or they're just starting out where they're starting with AI at the center. Even think about marketing automation. Like, so are we going to just bolt AI onto Marketo, you know, and HubSpot or, is somebody going to reinvent that entire workflow and process and system of record, system of execution with AI at the center? I should, if I'm a, if I'm running social, you know, for William Sonoma, how different is it to be pinged by the system saying, Hey, here's six ideas for, for like a post today on Instagram, right? The text, the, image it's pulling from my assets it understands my style and my voice or you know it's hey it's it's november 15th like do you have you know black history month is in is in february like have you got a campaign around that do you have newsletters do you have like promotions do you have is your sales team you know talking about that you know in some way is there an event you're planning i i really think the whole notion of marketing automation is going to change entirely, right, with this stuff. Agreed. And I'm hoping that we do reinvent. And no no shade at Marketo, but 
I don't know if I want that world where people are just plugging AI into Marketo and letting loose. I think all of our inboxes are already scary enough. Now nah, it's gonna it's gonna be so interesting. I've I've heard of agencies already selling uh, AI prompts, so people are actually buying prompts from agencies now because they know how to get the best image, the best blog using your kind of narrative and brand guidelines, which is so interesting to to wrestle with what that looks like for the future of, of marketing as a whole. I do think it's still going to be human in the loop for a really long time, if not forever. So, you know, I, I think it's naive to think of these things as just completely automated, but I think our ability to be more efficient and also more effective with a human, like take the best parts of the human plus the AIs is, I, I I think it's a misnomer to think that all of this just becomes completely automated. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's almost the human side, right? Is the, the prompt. What do you, what do you feed the, the AI? That becomes the creative element to it, which is complete democratization of creativity a little bit. Cause you have all of these, uh, what well, we could go down this rabbit hole. I mean, even, even for my, yeah, even for my humble little, you know, local Indian restaurant, you know, I was in there playing around with, with copy.ai and, you know, we're our chai business. We're a tiny little, you know, CPG e-com brand and we've got, you know, 30 SKUs, but gosh, the ability to go in and rewrite the product names, the descriptions, the meta descriptions, you know, generate some captions for our social. I mean, that is enormously impactful for a small business like ours that's time constrained, probably skill constrained. You know, so I think SMB, especially where I have this sort of through line of passion around local and SMB in my career, I'm most excited about that. Well, beautiful. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to discuss on this and I'm, I'm going to continue down this rabbit hole and wormhole as I think uh, many of our listeners will. But, you know, this is a story based podcast. I want to spend the, the majority of the time kind of dissecting what you were able to accomplish at AdRoll because I know there was just a ton of learnings and a ton of things you did right few maybe that you would do differently. And I'll give the, the floor to you, you and transport you back to that time when you're building AdRoll and uh, share that that story with the listeners. Yeah. So, you know, so if we pick up the story, you know, from my background, so I had this amazing sort of experience at Google, but it was time to leave the cozy confines and go figure out what I was going to do next. And for me, Admiral's office was this amazing place. It was at 6th and Mission in San Francisco. It was one of the roughest blocks in San Francisco. It was almost like the Hunger Games, just trying to get to the office on my first day. I mean, you are stepping over people and needles and other things that you don't want to step on. It, it, and I get into the lobby, and I'm coming from Google, right? This is my first day after six years at Google. And I walk in the lobby and the security guard is like literally asleep at the desk. Uh, the lobby feels like the inside, like the, a tunnel going to like a pool at the YMCA. It had like this weird tiling on the sides. It smelled weird. And I was like activated. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like this is who I am. Like I'm an underdog. I'm an outsider. Like I'm the son of immigrants, right? Like I came from nothing. And I'm an A's fan, you know, I'm, I'm not a Yankees fan. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on the A's. Like, this is amazing. I got to do more with less. And it was my turn now as, as a leader. I wasn't at this big company anymore, which is what I kept telling myself. I wanted, I wanted to have impact. Well, here you go. 
And it was my turn to help intentionally design a culture at Adwell to figure out how to motivate people. Like what had I learned? What did I want to intentionally do to make this a place that I would want to work at? And I was this person that was wired to be something because of my backstory and my family. And I thought so much about like, what was it all for? Why did my dad leave everything behind at 35 years old? I've got to make something of myself to make that journey worth it. And so I wanted to figure out how to tap into that raw energy that was inside of me. Like, how do I find other people that have that fire inside? And and I just needed to like find them and then unlock that energy. And so that was kind of what I started thinking about performance culture around. Like, how do I create a real performance culture? And, you know, and I think when most people hear performance culture, there can be a like a negative association with that of like, oh, it's up or out, it's cutthroat, it's, um, you know, lots of people getting fired. And really, I, I think I wanted to recapture that phrase, uh, performance culture, and redefine it in what it meant to me, which is, I think it was more about finding people who are wired for greatness, you know, who yearn for that, you know, and, and then understanding them and their motivations and supporting them to put them in a position to thrive. And so if you find people that are wired like this, like they want to be somebody and they feel cared for and supported, boy, that creates like a a magical culture where there's like urgency and rawness. And, you know, as leaders, you can demand excellence from people, you know, and you can hold people accountable to performance because they hold themselves accountable. Like they want to be something. And so it's almost like training an Olympic athlete. Uh, You know, you've got to push them and, and, it might not feel good to get pushed in the moment, but if you're wired to want to be something, you're going to know that 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 coach or that manager or that leader has, you're, you're aligned towards the same goal. And so that was kind of what I wanted to try to do is, is, is find. So the first big part of the challenge there was how do I spot people in the interview process that have this, this challenge? And, you know, one, one of my hot takes back then is, is I think that 80% of the battle, you know, if you're a founder listening to this pod, and I advise a bunch of kind of like tech startups and often it's technical founders that are thinking about how to build and scale sales. And I think the dirty little secret here is that 80% of the battle in building a great sales team is won or lost by hiring the right people. It's actually, you can build all the pipes and automation and A-B testing frameworks you want and look at all the data you want. At the end of the day, the most important thing you can do, the biggest lever is finding people that have that primal drive to be awesome, like to be somebody. And um, my phrase for that is wired for greatness. Um, and so when you, when you have people that have that intrinsic motivation, they're going to come into work and drive themselves intrinsically. They're going to drive themselves crazy in the pursuit of being great. And man, when you find that, like you don't have to micromanage those people. You don't have to worry about what time they come to work, what time they shut down their laptop, you know, do they go to the training or not? Like you just have to point them in the right direction and put some guardrails. And so I feel like that is the single most basic but non-obvious thing that I would think about if I was starting, you know, if I was a technical founder trying to build a sales team, start from that. And so the, the challenge though is like, I felt like, and I might not be right because I think I probably was more biased in retrospect looking back, but like, I felt like I knew it when I saw it at Adderall. Like I could interview people because I'd interviewed so many salespeople by this point that I knew how to extract this, like, does this person have this trait or not? And I felt like I could do that in the early days. But as you scale quickly in a sales team, you know, I'm not making all the hiring decisions. I'm not in every interview. You have to define it in a lot more tangible and probably less biased way. And so how do you find people that are wired for greatness? And then you have to ensure your interviewing teams have the skills to actually do that. 
right? So much of, of recruiting, if you look at recruiting tech or just the, the I think it's like a five or six or $700 billion industry around sourcing talent. But think about it. There, there's no like, there's not a real technology around training people on how to like, once someone signs up for a screen, like how do you interview them? Well, what questions should you ask? Like, what do you, what are you actually looking for in a response? What does good look like function by function? So, so coming back to Adroll, you know, the question then was how do I get everybody who's on the interviewing panel to actually be able to identify this trait wired for greatness? What does it look like? And so it could be an achievement someone has, like maybe they were a successful competitive swimmer or some accomplished pianist, or maybe they came from a tough upbringing and they like worked their way through college, right? But there's some evidence in the background that they had some grit and resilience and like burning desire. That was like part of of the challenge. And and that's what we try to start to look for is just where does that motivation come from? And so, you know, when I think when you build a core of people in your org that are wired like this, it really sets the tone and it spills across the organization. It has an amplification effect and there's just this energy and urgency that fuels your org. Yeah. I resonate with everything there greatly. And, you know, having hired a lot of folks back in the day, some of my best, you know, BDRs came from very non-traditional backgrounds and they were given a shot in tech and they were going to prove themselves no matter what. They didn't want to go back to carpentry or they didn't want to go back to serving. They're like, what? All they have to do is pick up this phone and book some meetings in this beautiful office and they give me snacks. Let's fucking go. You know, they have our best, you know, so our best sales rep at the time, maybe ever that I've ever worked with, I've worked with some really great ones, but we had this rep, Ryan Loveman, and he was at Adderall before I got there and we had hired him off Craigslist and he was selling, I want to say like telecom services just door to door and living in a van. Like he, that, like that was what he was doing before Adderall. And he's still there. He's been there for 14 years. He's been the top rep year after year after year after year. He's incredible. And it was one of the things that I was worried about coming out of Google and coming to Adderall is I'm on the A's now. Like a lot of the lessons I learned being at Google weren't necessarily going to apply, you know, because look, Google's at a certain stage. They're at a certain, they have a certain brand. They have a certain product set. And the lessons that you apply that worked at Google at the era that I was there weren't the right lessons necessarily at Adderall. And I wanted to try to be a first principles thinker and, and try to solve. I didn't want to be the, the person. I'm sure we've all worked with people that are like, well, at Google, we did it this way. And so that's why we should do it here. That felt like a real mistake. And one of the big ahas for me was when I met people like Ryan. We, we had a couple reps with these non-traditional backgrounds that I adopted when I got to Adderall. I was like, I never would have spotted these people if I went in with bias being like, what college did you go to? And tell me what your track record of performance has been. You know, it, 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 there were other things that were motivating them. And so that was a really big aha for me. Yeah. So you've mentioned the A's a few times. Uh, obviously there's some, there's, there's money ball references there, right? You have to completely rethink the strategy. It sounds like you did. What did you do right in, in kind of, like codifying that or, or setting up systems? Because I think it can be easy or it's easier when you're, like you said, you're interviewing everyone and you have this innate burning desire. So your ability to 
uh, see it, it is maybe easier than some other folks. How did you start teaching this to other hiring managers and really scale this out? From an interviewing perspective, I would say it was primarily once we recognized that it was mission critical to find these people. I mean, we are up against Google, you know, and like Facebook and some of the biggest companies in the world. And it was a hugely competitive market. We needed the best humans, you know, on the planet to be in the sales team, right? It was um, incredibly competitive. Once we realized that hiring these people that are wired for greatness is at the center of what we do. And if you believe that 80% of the battle is the person that you hire, then as the CRO, there was no time investment that was too much to get my recruiting team and my interview panelists to really deeply become experts at interviewing and to be fully aligned on what they're looking for. So I would just say at the time, it was spit and elbow grease and just like time spent together practicing interviewing, you know, having the right interview questions, having swim lanes for what every interview does. So we had these four categories that we looked for. It was, we looked for people that were really smart. And I think in sales, often people get misled by people over hire for like Rolodex. Like, does this person know people in my industry or have they sold the product that I'm selling? I, I think that's like probably among the least important of the things that I look for in hiring the right salesperson. I start from cognitive. Just is IQ is probably the leading, most leading unbiased like predictor of future success. If you look at the research. And so, and that's true of salespeople too. And I think this is another area where technical founders sometimes get this wrong is they think their engineers need to be really smart, but they think their salespeople somehow just need to be robots that just make like a thousand dollars a day. And I'm like, no, 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 your sales rep, especially in the early days, your first few reps, they need to be really smart. I would argue this never goes away actually. So at the top of my list, when I look for reps is IQ. And I, and I think in this, in the spirit of sales, what I mean by that is quick learner, you know, high neuro, uh, plasticity, growth mindset, like knows how to ask good questions, can talk to somebody in the telecom industry and figure out their business and then maybe be on a call right afterwards with like a medical facility and be able to just understand that, look, these are first principles of how you do discovery, how you ask questions, how you establish rapport, how do you communicate? A lot of that is just comes back to raw IQ. That's the first thing. And then I'd say the second really big thing we looked for is then the motivation. If you could find people that are really smart, that have this wired for greatness kind of like fire burning, um, and if you could just pair that with with two more things, which is humility. Like, I don't know what I don't know, and, and I'm okay to be wrong, and I'm okay to ask questions. Um, and, and then the last thing would be collaborative skills, just deeply collaborative. That is a cheat code, right? I mean, if everybody in your sales org was smart, collaborative, humble, right? Like that is a cheat code for success. So that was how we tried to find those people. But I think the key then is like, how do you unlock them once you're in your, once they're in your org? Like, what can you do? Cause obviously I said earlier, that's 80% of the battle, but you still don't want to be like that coach that rolls a bunch of players out on the field with no strategy. And you're like, well, I got the best players. So like, I assume they'll just win the game. I mean, you still want to be thoughtful, intelligent about how you take advantage of the talent that you have. And so for me, probably one of the most transformative things I've ever done in my career was um, building it at Adwell, this program called Honor Roll. And so, you know, in terms of the situation, this was our training program. So, you know, I just joined from Google. We, we, you kind of got the story now, like we were the scrappy 
15, 20% team, but we knew we had found early product market fit and it was time to step on the gas. That's why they wanted someone like me to come in. So I needed to hire tens of AEs at a time, you know, it ended up being like a hundred in the first year. And we didn't have a training function. We didn't have any EAs. We didn't have, there was nothing. It was just a very raw environment. But the main metric was I need to minimize time to ramp. This is going to be a, a, it was an SMB mid-market motion. We're going to have a pretty large inside sales team. Time to ramp is a critical metric. So what did we do? We killed two birds with one stone by establishing a culture where everyone trains everyone. So Honor Roll was this peer-to-peer training system. We had these super ambitious AEs who were wired for greatness. And what we said to them is, you're going to create your own trainings and you're going to teach your own trainings to each other. It's a mandatory, intense training program. Uh, it starts from when you start, it's, you know, classes, multiple classes a day, every day, you know, from day one. There's certifications and gates along the way. But, you know, it starts from, let's call it, you know, five classes a day for the first five days. And maybe it goes to two classes a day in the second week, in third week, and then it's one class week. But it continued. Like when you hit your six-month mark, you get to, you know, the 102 class. You, you've already passed the 101 class, right? And so, and, and there were, you know, we did everything from... Industry 101, Industry 201, Industry 301. You know, as you got more senior, you still got trained, you know, but but it was getting more sophisticated. Product, 101, 201, 301. How to do discovery at this company, 101, 201, 301. Writing great, effective emails, 101, 201, 301. And because it was self-taught, you know, it, it just created this culture that you couldn't just win by yourself. Like Like we valued sharing of knowledge and helping each other win. And so that was the complementary fabric we needed to this wired for greatness metric. Because if you do, if you just hire that one trait unguarded, you can turn into potentially toxic kind of like everyone's out for themselves culture. And so my role in this especially was you're not going to get promoted without being a teacher in honor role. And you're going to get rated on every class that you deliver. Um, every class gets rated on was the content useful and was the instructor useful. And those ratings were right in there in, in our quarterly rating system, in the promotion decisions. You wouldn't get it promoted. You, you can crush your quota all you want, but if you're not teaching classes, you're not going to the next level. And I want to do a shout out to Lizzie Lear, who uh, Lizzie Lear at, came over from Yelp back in the days. And she was just the orchestrator of all orchestrators running this program. She's my day one homie on this. And she was just in there running the recruiting process and this honor roll thing with duct tape, a bullhorn and a spreadsheet. It was just no tech. It was just like, all right, 201, like product 201 is starting. Get your asses into the conference room. You know, we get a founder to come in and teach the class. And, you know, the founder got rated, you know, Adam Burke would get in and teach like the product. 201 class and, and he would get rated just like everybody else. And it just became this thing where reps would fight to get into being an instructor. And what an amazing signal that sends to new hires when you get in and everyone around you is sharing knowledge, right? So we, you know, in terms of results in 2016, um, I still have this metric like wired into my brain. We taught over 2,000 classes to a 500-person company. Because what happened is other functions were like, well, where's our version of our role? Like, I'm in the product team. I'm in the engineering team. I'm in the marketing. Like, I also want to, like, learn and develop, and I want to teach and share. And so it became this wonderful sort of culture of learning and sharing across the whole company.
Incredible. That's the that's the golden. That's what everyone's hoping for, right? Is this basically this is the honor roll program? And I was going to ask you about like incentives and what's the carrot for them, but really it was their only path to promotion. Like it almost sounds like hitting your number was table stakes. What you're here to do is teach and share your knowledge and level up the collective, not just the the individual. Well, we're here to win as a team. And, and, and the first thing is you need to do your core role, but what are you doing to make everybody around you better, right? Encoding our values around collaboration into the promotion decisions was really, really, really important. The fastest way to tear this culture down and the system down would have been for me to promote people that were just out for themselves. Which can be tough. I imagine there were some players on your team that were kicking ass and you probably wanted to retain them. They were probably ambitious and you probably had to make some difficult decisions not to promote them because they weren't maybe bought into this idea and that would start eroding the whole the whole system. And then the brilliance of it too is your future leaders who are teaching have just been reinforcing their own learnings through teaching others. So, you know, they're ready for that next step. I think we all know that like, I mean, nobody knows everything about everything. So the teachers were definitely sharpening their own knowledge of the curriculum by being forced to articulate what matters. And so I was, I think it made our senior reps better, right? Because they really had to, if you can explain it, uh, that's a really big step. Like you don't know what you know until you have to try to explain it to someone else, right? What was interesting um, to your point is on the, on the, like, were there tough decisions we had to make? Uh, with reps that maybe didn't buy into this is the culture became self-policing. The reps valued it so much that it oozed in the interview process. And so if this wasn't your vibe, you probably didn't want to come in. But once you came in, if you weren't sticking to the values, uh, like the community values, the reps would catch each other. It wouldn't even make it to management sometimes. Like when, when things were going well, I don't want to make this sound like it was always shits and giggles and it was all up and to the right absolutely not but there was a magical phase here where this worked really really well and the reps very much policed themselves and they would pull someone over and be like hey we've talked about this right like 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 this is what matters to us and and that was really cool to see yeah that self-policing performance of demanding excellence that is culture in an in an in an essence right it's like a group of People sharing the same ideas and thoughts. And if they can self-police each other, that's that's incredible. So quickly, I want to go to the other side of the fence. So you had this kind of magical moment. You know, everything is working. You've got the self-policing culture that demands excellence from each other. Where did you go wrong? Put another way, what would you maybe do differently looking back? So many things. <laughs> um, I'll start with like at the executive level. We were, we were I think, the fastest growing startup in Silicon Valley one year. We were the fastest growing ad tech company in the US, I think two years in a row. We were really cranking. And I wish, number one, as I wish that I had managed our board and our revenue forecast to be like, hey, yeah, we could grow at this percentage breakneck speed next year. But if we pulled it down by 15%, 20%, it's going to take a lot of pressure off the system. Because we needed to hire so many people that we just couldn't be this intentional and this hands-on to hit. You know, if, if you're trying to add a hundred reps, well, you're doing like 500 interviews or more 
you know, to get to those hundred reps, you're building a hundred desks, you're buying a hundred monitors, you have, you know, all the classes that you have to teach and the law of large numbers catches up really fast. And we, we were like a kid that grew, you know, eight inches, you know, over summer. Well, you're going to have a lot of growing pains and you're going to be a little bit awkward for a while. And so, you know, this system worked amazingly well when we were small, but as we got bigger, we did what you would imagine. We looked for ways to automate it, looked for ways to scale it. You know, it went from the top rep teaching, like Ryan Loveman teaching, you know, how he structured his day to like a video of Ryan Loveman talking about how he structures his day, you know, and you just lost, we lost the raw energy and the visceral spirit that we had when we were smaller. Um, and it became, I'd say, more of a traditional training program. And it was still impactful, but I'd say it wasn't what it was in the early days, you know. Um, um, the second thing is I kind of wish I had starved the, the headcount and the budget for training. This is a super counterintuitive thing to say, but like we built this, we built this because we didn't have any other choice. Like Lizzie was out there, you know, with her duct tape and a bullhorn and a spreadsheet because what else were we going to do? Right. There wasn't time or resources or tools. And sometimes I think there's like this abundance of software can really dehumanize like processes and it can take the energy and spirit out of things, if that makes sense. Like there's an intuition that great people have. And so, you know, I think that peer to peer spirit had more legs on it. We, we kind of centralized and automated just too early. You know, I, I wish I had stuck with that more. Yeah. So I'll, I'll push you on that. And I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. So you, you're kind of forced to automate some things as you get bigger. You're, you're forced to think about ways to scale it. How would you keep that raw energy? Would you try and break it into smaller groups and, and keep the same vibe going? Like, how would you do that if you are scaling to a, you know, 5,000 person organization? I think that middle management, like that's that, that layer of managers that are team leads up into like, say through directors, as you get bigger, that is the critical layer to try to keep the spirit. Cause often those people came up through the ranks and they, they, they embody the culture. And that's why you probably made them a team lead, you know, and then they probably made their way to a manager or director. I needed to hold them accountable to say, Hey, this, this was the thing that set us apart. This is core. And what I mean by that is by holding them accountable is, I want to see your scores. Like I want to see the classes that you're teaching and I want to see the scores of the attendees and I want to see, you know, how are our instructors doing? And I, that's a, that would have been a good use of my time. Um, I couldn't go impact, you know, 400 reps, but I could impact 20 or 30 or 40 managers, right? In a management all hands to say, this is the thing I want to hold you to. That training team, it could have been a one to many, a more decentralized sort of like approach. I, I would have kept it decentralized more. And and that would have really empowered a, a team lead or a director, you know, my team lead in sitting in EMEA in the Dublin office, you know, running the Nordic region. Like I can still impact that person in a one-to-many way that's still pretty scalable. And and frankly, I I probably took my eye off the ball and said, okay, this was amazing. It's going to be what it's going to be. I've got these other fires to put out. And that's what I mean by as our goals continued to remain really ambitious on growth, I think as a leader, you're just, you're spinning so many plates at once that you can't, you really can't solve this one plate, right? The, the training thing 
by yourself. And so I needed to have a, a, a more decentralized approach where we had a training function that understood the strategy was to, is that the strategy would be to keep it raw, visceral, peer to peer. I would have done that a lot longer. Um, and I think it's okay to apply technology to this. There's nothing wrong with technology, especially in a remote world. We're not in the same room. So these are naturally going to be on video. And I think it's okay to record things at times. But what I really wanted to capture the spirit of is, hey, the all-time record for someone to get certified level two on our pitch is two and a half days from their first date. And putting that out, which is what we used to do, right? telling reps as they got their offer letter, here's your bogey. The all-time record to get certified uh, level one is at the end of your first day. Level two is the end of your third day, level three, and so on. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, well, I want to do it by, before lunchtime, uh, right? And you can see how this spirit of, like, competitiveness and wired for greatness, like, it's all it all kind of builds on itself. But I think there's an opportunity to, to maintain that as you get bigger, but it has to come through that management layer. And, and I think as you're, as the leader, you need to like impact that team to capture that spirit. Absolutely. So focus on that middle management layer and highlight this idea of a raw, visceral, decentralized peer to peer training approach. You can lean into technology, but that needs to be at the essence of, of what you're doing for, for training. Uh, I think that's great. That's super actionable. All right. Two more questions for you um, as we wrap up. Always like to uh, bring in a listener question. I uh, went through a bunch. Uh, this is a, a huge topic, but I'll get you just quick couple sentences on this. Question was, what is the number one reason you think startups fail? I mean, what a question. I can probably name about 50, uh, but what would you put as number one? The one I'll pick is really often I see startups failing because they're not solving a problem that is a burning fire for their target audience. And often it comes because maybe they built the technology because they were interested and curious and they built it and then they're retrofitting around a pain point. And so this notion of like low to moderate pain, it can feel like positive signal of like we're on the right path, but you need a lot more than low to moderate pain. I think especially in this environment where CFOs are cutting non-essential software, you need to solve a really big problem for like a meaningful amount of people. And that's what I typically see like very often um, with like advisory clients. They're just struggling to win, you know, enough clients or get enough people to sign up in a PLG motion. And often the root problem is just, I don't think this is a big enough problem for your audience. Yeah. I'll underscore that one three times, yeah, especially today. You know, there's no room for nice to haves. This needs to be, I would even say more than need to haves. You know, it's like a burning need to have. I have a problem. A burning, like, like I, I was working with this. My house is on fire kind of shit. <laughs> there's this awesome company that I've been doing some advisory work with called Hire Guide down in Los Angeles. Amazing team. They all came out of LinkedIn and they're working on this, like, how do I make interviewing like uh, better for companies, right? Can we help with like asking better questions? Can we record interviews like Gong does and like transcribe the interviews and so on? There's a lot of things you could do. And one of the things we were talking about is, well, who do you sell this product to? And I kept coming back to like, who's the person that's going to get fired for making a bad hiring decision? It's not the talent acquisition 
person. Their job is just fill the wreck. You know, it's not the interviewer. Nobody gets promoted or fired for being a bad interviewer. But if you're a hiring manager, if I'm a, if I'm a director and I need to hire 10 AEs to hit my number this year and I hire the wrong people and we have to let them go, I'm gone, right? Like I missed my number. And so, and I think with a lot of startups, you need to be thinking about, you know, who has the most skin in the game if they didn't, you know, and benefits or, or, or loses from, you know, your product existing. And that's got to be a, a really big amount of pain. I hear that. And it's not always the easy route. Like in that example, it feels much easier to be like, oh, let's just go hot. Let's go target talent acquisition managers. That's one buyer persona. That's one ICP. That's one motion. Let's go hammer them. And in reality, to actually go and capture the one with the burning problem, you're going to have to go like business unit by business unit, understand what that hiring manager needs. And it's not going to be the easy route, but that's how you're going to get to the true pain. I think that was that was gold. All right. Final question. And uh, I always leave this uh, intentionally broad and sweeping so you can take it whichever way you want. But Suresh, in a, a few sentences, how would you summarize your career learnings thus far? I think the thing that I've come to, to learn in my career is the importance of serendipity. There have been so many events over the years where I'm like, okay, I signed up for this mixer. Gosh, it's five o'clock. I want to go to the gym or I want to go home and I'm tired and I'm grumpy. And I'll, I'll drag myself to this thing. I'll go through the event. I will be like on the way home and saying, that was as much of a waste of a time as I thought it was. Um, like I regretted that. And I'll get home and then a year later, six months later, two years later, something will come of that event. And so as you get just more mileage, more data, more ex life experiences, I've come to realize that you have to create these opportunities for yourself in the universe. And you have to be out and open to the world of possibilities. Oftentimes, you're going to feel like you're putting yourself out for something and it didn't work or it wasn't worth the effort. And almost always, I'm thankful that I did. And uh, and it ends up being a, like a net positive. So yeah, the importance of serendipity, energy, putting your ideas and intentions out to the universe. Um, it's a little bit hippie, but it, man, it's been really important to me. I am with you there. I was always told that half the battle is just showing up. You got it. You got to show up. That's where opportunity and luck lies. You know, if you show up and then you mix that, you know, with your broader learning of 80% of the battle of growing a company is getting the right people on board. You do those two things, you know, you're going to be able to have a big impact on your team and, and the world. Well, Suresh, thank you again. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And in true form, you did show up this week in San Francisco. We did a happy hour. So thank you for coming. But you're always a wealth of knowledge. And I know our listeners are going to love this episode. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time, your friendship, and just the way you see the world, man. So uh, thanks again for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. Love, love this conversation and, and go GTM Fund. Amazing. It's just an amazing community. Rock and roll. We're just getting started. And as always, for the listeners, you know, listening is one thing. Execution is everything. I hope you apply some of these learnings and get out there and grow your business and your impact. And we'll see you all next week. Bye.